0: for all time season two episode two it's july 12th tuesday 328 p.m 2022 Feeling Unmoored, Feeling Unmoored, and Reaching for Pills, The New York Times, Sunday, July 10th, 2022. Prescriptions for mental health medications have increased during the pandemic, by Casey Schwartz. If you're wondering which pills and how many of them Americans have relied upon to make ourselves feel better since COVID-19 arrived, the answer is in short, yes. I should have gone back on medication sooner in the pandemic than I did, said Leah Bellow Handelman, 36. Ms. Bellow Handelman, a nurse who lives in Brooklyn with two small children, has been on and off Prozac for anxiety since her 20s. Shortly before the pandemic, she had weaned herself off in time for her first pregnancy. So, she wasn't taking anything when the pandemic struck, even though her life was operating in full crisis mode. She worked at the urgent care center at memorial sloan kettering in manhattan a cancer hospital the emergency room is dedicated to current and former cancer patients and many of the patients admitted to the urgent care had especially severe cases of COVID and needed oxygen or intubation right away quote we just put our heads down and did what we had to do she said we were in such autopilot disaster mode in the spring that by the summer that was when we were really we really realized how intense that spring really had been. She also felt isolated. Many friends had left the city, and those who remained, some were hesitant to see her because she worked in healthcare. By August 2020, her husband encouraged her to go back into therapy. After a complicated second birth, she decided she needed more than just talk. Her therapist, she said, quote, was never opposed to me going back on medication, but she was trying to get me to do mindfulness and other meditations. Stuff that I just don't do. She turned to Prozac again. Now, she said, quote, I'm a different person. The reasons behind the decision to start or restart psychiatric medication are often not reducible to simple cause and effect. Quote, I'm definitely medicated because of COVID, but I'm also medicated because I'm a woman who was a nurse who had babies in the middle of COVID and a traumatic birth, Miss Bellow Handelman said. She is one of millions of Americans who have started or restarted psychiatric medication during COVID's long and dreary run. Tracking exactly which pills Americans are swallowing these days is difficult because much of this information is privately held. But from companies that provided data to the New York Times and from other existing research, it is possible to begin to assemble a picture of our medicine cabinets and, by extension, our mental health first the broad strokes in 2019 the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimated that 15.8% of American adults took prescription pills for mental health 15.8% during the pandemic the National Center for Health Statistics teamed up with the Census Bureau to carry out quick online quote pulse surveys and tracked mental health prescription pill use the numbers they turned up echo what we already sense. We are depressed, anxious, tired, and distracted. What's new is this. Almost a quarter of Americans over the age of 18 are now medicated for one or more of these conditions. More specifically, according to data provided to the Times by Express Scripps, a pharmacy benefits manager. Prescriptions across three categories of mental health, medications, depression, anxiety, and ADHD have risen since the pandemic began, but they have done so unevenly, telling a different story for each age group and each class of medication. Antidepressants continue to be the most commonly prescribed of these medications in the United States, and their use has become only more widespread since the pandemic began from 2019 to 2021 compared with 7.9% from 2017 to 2019, according to Express Scripts. IQVIA, a global health technology and clinical research firm, found that in 2021, nearly 337.1 million prescriptions were written for antidepressants in the United States, representing a steady annual increase since 2017, when that number had been nearly 313.7 million. So that's uh, 313.7 to 337.1 million prescriptions. But for some age groups, that change has been more pronounced. Since 2017, there has been a 41% increase in antidepressant use for teenagers included in the Express Scripts data, which consists of roughly 19 million individual people. Well, I'll leave the word individual out since they did. For this same 13 to 19 year old bracket, in the first two years of the pandemic, there was a 17.3% change in anxiety medications. It had been a 9.3% Rate of change between 2017 and 2019. One of 13 year old. <laughs> one 13 year old rising eighth grader in Colorado currently takes the antidepressant Paxil and the stimulant Adderall. She also takes melatonin, a non prescription supplement, to help her sleep. Before the pandemic, she had started taking Adderall to help with ADHD, but when her school switched to remote learning, she struggled. Quote, it just felt like one of those days where you sit at home and you don't want to do anything, she said. Oh, and you don't do anything, she said. It felt like that was every day, like I was stuck in some endless cycle of sitting in one place. For me, everything felt a lot more pointless. I, it didn't feel like I was in school. I just felt like I was in a dream. "'so I didn't feel like I needed to do my assignments "'because I didn't feel like anything I did at the time "'actually mattered,' End quote. "'Sitting with her puppy helped, "'but her teachers told her it was too distracting on screen. "'Ultimately, her mother decided to try her on Paxil. "'She's an anxious person,' quote, "'said the teenager's mother, Ellie. "'She gets stuck in her own head and her thoughts loop. "'She gets frustrated with schoolwork,' and she doesn't want to do it if she doesn't think she can do it perfectly quote it was affecting her mental health and she was cranky and depressed and she got her period early she added it was just so many things at once it was just so many things at once the mother said their pediatrician recommended she come off the Adderall to determine whether the Paxil worked While she was off the Adderall, her grades slipped. She recently started taking it again. She said the main downside of Adderall came at mealtimes. Last year, when I was on it, she said, I couldn't eat anything, so my sister would make me smoothies so I didn't have to chew. I just felt too productive to eat, she added. I had no appetite. Instead, my brain was like, you have to do everything right now. My body was hungry, but my mind was not. These rising medication numbers aren't necessarily caused by a worsening of mental health in this country, although we know that rates of anxiety and depression have increased. Hmm. Part of the uptick could be explained by the fact that people stuck at home finally had time to seek out the health care they had been delaying. But patients seeking help are doing so against a backdrop of isolation. Restriction. And I took my finger off where I was in the story. And uncertainty and grief. There's less of a barrier, culturally, around using medications, said Dr. Cecil R. Webster, Jr., a psychiatrist in Boston and a lecturer at Harvard Medical School and McLean Hospital and son of Dr. Cecil R. Webster, Sr., At the same time, life in the digital age means that people expect immediacy, immediate replies, immediate delivery, immediate improvement. Quote, we have no tolerance for slow change, he said, but many of the problems we are faced with demand slow change. So true. Yet, we've always had problems, And for everyone alive today, we've always had pills. The tranquilizers that first became popular in Eisenhower's America were, within a few years, so commonplace as to be called, quote, mother's little helpers, until they were shown to be dangerously addictive. In the 1950s and 60s, we were, um, the 1950s and 60s were widely framed as the age of anxiety, said Anne Harrington, the author of Mind Fixers, Psychiatry's Troubled Search for the Biology of Mental Illness, and a historian of science at Harvard. Quote, In the 80s and 90s became the age of depression, and yet it's unclear that people's symptoms have actually changed. Quite precisely. Quite precisely. Consider that in a separate, unrelated, neutral context. the rise of the antidepressant prozac arrived in 1987 and just seven years later there was elizabeth verzel the harvard grad with the big doleful eyes staring out from the cover of her blockbuster book prozac nation an early devotee of such pills she reported from the front lines of the new pharmacological war on sadness an avatar of gen x anguish and hope ms verzel died in 2020 from breast cancer Prozac set a new standard for the treatment of depression, but its success was tied to its predecessors. Long before there was Prozac, there was Ipronazid. Iproniazid, iproniazid, Developed for tuberculosis, but applied to depression after doctors observed the cheering effect on a group of TB patients in a hospital in Staten Island. The often told story has it that they danced in the hallways. Sounds like a story to look up. Ipranozid did not cure TB, but it came into the market as something with potentially wider application. The long-sought psychic energizer, as Dr. Nathan Klein, a psychoanalyst who was one of its earliest champions, put it. Prozac was developed to answer what was then the prevalent theory of depression, that it was caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain, specifically too little serotonin. Prozac and similar drugs are called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, meaning they block the reabsorption of serotonin in the brain. Quote When these drug companies began to market SSRIs as drugs repairing a so called chemical imbalance, if you took carefully at if you look carefully at the early ads, they say depression may be caused by, or we don't actually know what causes depression in the fine print, said Professor Harrington. But the Food and Drug Administration made it easier for drug companies to advertise directly to consumers, and the language of chemical imbalance, according to Professor Harrington, had a really big impact on how we made sense of our mental distress. As the psychiatrist Dr. Peter Kramer put it in Listening to Prozac, his landmark 1993 book that helped crystallize the cultural moment, Prozac was on Nightline when he went to sleep And on the Today Show, when you woke up, within the first two years of Prozac's existence, 650,000 prescriptions were written for it per month. Well, you, you continue, as I have to, uh, ponder the, uh, uh, continue to ponder that. In 1993, Dr. Kramer was asking careful questions about who should use Prozac and why. But almost 30 years later, he recognizes that the dispensing of antidepressants has grown significantly more casual. Prozac and its cousins like Zoloft and Lexapro, given out to treat depression but also anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and other disorders, are now a banal sight in American medicine cabinets between the Band-Aids and the Tylenol. Quote, I think the reason doctors are more blasé about prescribing medicines is that they've now been around for a long time and they can prescribe them without getting into trouble. Dr. Kramer said. But there's one more reason, too, he thinks, our growing intolerance for more mild levels of depression neurosis. In quotes as he says. Debates rage on the efficacy and safety of antidepressants. In a recent article in The Nation, the writer P.E. Moskovitz, echoing a long-standing concern of some prominent skeptics, points out that antidepressants are much more difficult to get off than advertised. And that chemical imbalance theory of depression, on which it all rests on, has never been proved. And let's interrupt here for uh, for a moment. The chemical imbalance theory reminds me a lot of how ecology was kind of co-opted into a way to prove certain uh, industry theories. In that you're you're seeking logic to explain something you want to prove. Um, Aware or not, you may be that ecology was essentially used to prove things. There's no reason that any science can't be used to prove anything. That would be uh, commercially advantageous. But uh, quote: I think the reasons are the reasons doctors are more blasé about prescribing these medicines is that they've now been around for a long time and they can prescribe them without getting into trouble. Dr. Kramer said. But there's one more reason, too, he thinks, our growing intolerance for more mild levels of depression and neurosis. Debates rage on the efficacy and safety of antidepressants. In a recent article in The Nation, the writer P.E. Moskowitz, echoing a long-standing concern of some prominent skeptics, points out that antidepressants are much more difficult to get off than advertised, and that the chemical imbalance theory of depression on which it all rests has never been proved. In a study published this year, In JAMA, a a team of researchers led by—I'm going to serve. that's the uh, Journal of American uh, Mental Alliance. The journal—we'll move on. A team of researchers led by Dr. Sadaf Milani at the University of Texas Medical Branch found that antidepressant use during the pandemic differed across genders. Looking at data pooled from 15 million to 17 million Americans during the initial months of the pandemic, she said— her team found that rates of serotogenic drugs prescribed for both depression and anxiety used by women increased 15.18% uh, prevalence rate by October, increased to a 15.18% prevalence rate by October 2020, compared with a 1277 increase in January 2018. For men, there was a bump in antidepressant use in the first weeks of the pandemic, with a 6.73% prevalence rate in April 2020, compared to with a 5.56% rate in January 2018. For men and women, rates of antidepressant use dropped off slightly in 2021, but remained higher than they were in 2018. Depression and Distraction Adderall, a medication that hit the U.S. market in 1996, was created to treat attention deficit disorder, and its very name, as Alan Schwartz reports in ADHD Nation, was inspired by the phrase ADD for all. Adderall was nothing new. The same chemical compound has been used in previous decades as a weight-loss drug, then called Obertol. Obertrol. But from a pharmacological perspective, it was a name well-chosen. Within 10 years, more than 9 million Adderall prescriptions were written. And from 2006 to 2016, obesity control, Obitrol that's probably what it was within 10 years more than 9 million adderall prescriptions were written and from 2006 to 2016 use of prescription stimulants doubled during the pandemic even as stimulant use amongst the youngest americans leveled off slightly the most recent data from express scripts suggests that these pills are being given at an increasing number to young adults among americans ages 20 to 44 Numbers of ADHD medications went up by 7% in 2017 to 2019, but they increased 16.7% from 2019 to 2021, which is roughly triple what they were in the previous period. That's significant. Uh, According to IQVIA, just under 77 million prescriptions were written for ADHD stimulant medications in 2021, nearly 6 million more than in 2020. 10 to 15% increase. In 2017, that number was just over 66.6 million. Yeah. In some ways, it's easy to understand why, just as millions of people are burned out, lethargic, and forced to focus all day on computer screens with little to no true social connection. To say nothing of exhausted parents stranded with no childcare, no school, and no help. Emergency legislation passed in the early days of pandemic may have helped to ease the pathway to an Adderall prescription even further. The new rules lifted the requirement that doctors see patients in person in order to prescribe them certain controlled substances, including Adderall. New telehealth companies like Cerebral, which was founded in 2020, provided customers with stimulate prescriptions after a 30-minute online-only consultation. The Wall Street Journal reported that the Cerebral Medical Group was recently subpoenaed. The company's president and chief medical officer, Dr. David Mao, uh, canceled an interview with The Times that same weekend. It's actually something I was going to mention at the end, but uh, the article uh, went ahead and pushed that anyway. That's great. What the therapists say. For many psychologists and psychiatrists, these numbers aren't exactly surprising. Clinicians across the country describe the same patterns. Their practices filled to capacity. Patients who are in significantly worse shape than before, patients who had been stable for years, now in need of hospitalization or intensive outpatient treatment, patients who had been in psychotherapy for years, suddenly needing medication for the first time, or higher doses of the meds they were already on. Harris Stratner, a New York psychologist, said that of his 70 patients, 46 started medications in the past two years. A lot of patients who have told me they feel like they can't get up in the morning, he said. Dr. Stratner's colleague and daughter, Alex Stratner, echoed her father's observations. I think what a lot of people are trying to avoid talking about is trauma. Millions were traumatized by COVID, she said. Millions of people have died, and there has been a processing on a grand scale of what it was we just endured has not been a processing on a grand scale of what it was we just endured. Dr. Robert Ashley, a psychiatrist in Los Angeles, said that, quote, everyone every day just wakes up with 10% extra pressure on them. Dr. Ashley prescribed in a practice saturated, described in a practice saturated with, quote, people who have been stable for years and in therapy, and they have reached a point during the pandemic where their therapist thinks they should be evaluated for medication. When Dr. Ashley puts patients on an antidepressant, his typical plan is to wait until they feel better or normal, which can take four to six weeks. Then keep them on the medication for six to 12 months, at which point he'll start to look for another good uh, for a good time to take them off. We're hoping that the depression was an aberration in their lives and not part of a recurring pattern. He said 70 percent of my patients who are taking antidepressants are in therapy of one form or another. So the hope is also that the medication lifts them out of the depression, that th- so that they can engage better in their psychotherapy. In some ways, Dr. Ashley's vision for the ideal use of antidepressants is the exception to the rule of how antidepressants are more commonly prescribed in the United States in a con- in a uh, primary care setting by a family doctor or internist, unaccompanied by talk therapy. In a 2013 study. Uh, A 2013 study found that more than 79% of antidepressant prescriptions were written by primary care physicians. Without the tools of talk therapy, one could wonder what the logic is of the prescription. Are the pills in and of themselves a cure that you take for a certain amount of time and then find yourself transformed? Or are they treatment that only works as long as you are still taking them, if they work at all? Existing research paints an inconclusive picture as to how effective antidepressants are compared to with a placebo. Quote, to me, therapy is the long-term solution, said Dr. Tina Nguyen, a psychiatrist and associate professor at Keck School of Medicine at USC, Los Angeles. But if the severity of your depression is high, you're not even able to engage with a therapist. Dr. Nguyen, whose specialty is childhood and adolescent psychiatry, described a similar phenomenon to Dr. Ashley's patients who need medications at higher doses than ever before. For one teenage patient, for example, Dr. Nguyen believes that the pandemic's abrupt lockdowns, social isolation, and fraught return to school have all contributed to the explosion of her symptoms. Dr. Nguyen sees her multiple times a week and describes Prozac, Concerta, Gabapentin, and Ritalin for when Concerta wears off. She had symptoms before COVID, Dr. Nguyen said. She would have needed treatment, but I don't know how it would have been as extreme. Back in Colorado, the teenager has no plans to discontinue meds. Her mother isn't concerned about the implications of the medications long term. She herself is used to the idea of taking prescription pills over years, even decades. Quote, I have been on Lexapro and Prozac for as long as I can remember, she said, I started taking Prozac as a senior in college, and I'm turning 50 this year. I would not be able to function without. Feeling unmoored and reaching for pills. We'll be back on the subject in just a moment, but quickly. where bobbleheads are born. At the Licensing Expo, the mascots get the spotlight, but don't ignore the French fries by Eve Peiser. At 10.30 a.m. on the second day of the annual Licensing Expo in Las Vegas, mascots from beloved brands lined up by a small stage in the back of the convention center at the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino, uh, preparing to march around for a character parade. Sonic the Hedgehog was there, as were several Teletubbies, a Smurf, Peppa Pig, the Elf on the Shelf, and Joffrey, the Toys R Us giraffe. Also in attendance, a dull pineapple with huge eyes and supple pink lips, and a dull banana that looked very happy, but lacked the pout of its pineapple friend. After being held virtually for two years because of the coronavirus pandemic, the Licensing Expo... Was back in person this year. The annual event connects owners of intellectual property with people who want to license that property, giving the two groups a space to show off their latest characters and products, network with one another, and ultimately make deals. From May 24th to 26th, upward of 10,000 people were in town in search of new partnerships and more creative ways to persuade consumers to buy what the attendees were selling. A giant Pikachu floated above the Pokemon stall. Warner Brothers displayed costumes from the latest Batman movie, the jersey Michael Jordan wore in Space Jam, and other pop culture artifacts. At Mattel, there were human-sized cardboard cutouts of Barbie decked out in Balmain. At the store for Moonbug, the company that produces popular children's show Coco Malone, there was a grown man dressed as Blippi, the star of Moonbug's other flagship property. I know it's Coco Malone. Brands for adults were also in attendance. There were stalls for the artists Keith Haring and Norman Rockwell. Shell had a legendary display of its electric scooters, and Legendary Entertainment had a setup promoting the movie Dune. Phil Sklar, co-founder and chief executive of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum in Milwaukee, attended the conference as a licensee. His museum has a store that sells bobbleheads, including those of President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine, Gritty, the mascot for the Philadelphia Flyers, and Jesus Christ, who does not require a licensing fee. Here at the Licensing Expo, let's just say we're talking to a brand. We get to know them, they get to know us, Mr. Scholar explained. They see our product. We have samples so they can touch, feel, and see the quality of our work, which is obviously very important for them. Brands want to make sure their brand image is maintained. It's very important when it comes to Vladimir Zelensky, president of Ukraine, Gritty, the mascot for the Philadelphia Flyers, and Jesus Christ, which does not require a licensing fee. In the adjacent casinos, the licensing did not end. Branded slot machines were everywhere. A perennially occupied Crazy Rich Asians one, too many Wheel of Fortune machines to count, and ones with themes such as Game of Thrones, Monopoly. The Wizard of Oz, The Voice, and the once popular Facebook game Farmville. When a slot machine has IP attached to it, quote, casino operators see a significant rise in revenue, said Jason Lim, the general manager of digital and online gaming at Ainsworth Game Technology, a slot machine company. Machine X can generate, let's say, $10,000 a day. Put a piece of IP on it, it's generating $100,000 a day. This has been covered in a previous episode and will be covered in a future episode. Check out uh, the book, uh, nonfiction book, Machine Gambling. Uh, incredibly fascinating. Uh, we will pick that up, but here's a little context for you. I actually didn't even know that was in the article. I hadn't read that part. Every year, branded products became more and more popular. Become. For example. In 2019, People bought $292.8 billion in licensed merchandise worldwide, up 4.5% from the previous year. Licensing also accounts for a huge amount of media companies' profits. A 2022 study found that licensed products made up nearly 21% of Disney's revenue. The company recorded $56.2 billion of licensed retail sales in 2021, per this year's top global licensors report. Branded products tend to be sold at a premium. A 2009 study found that, quote, the average licensed item is priced 32.9% higher than a non-licensed equivalent. But people remain drawn to licensed products. A 2009 study found that the average licensed item is priced 32.9% higher than a non-licensed equivalent, but people remain drawn to licensed products. Branded products tend to be sold at a premium. A 2009 study found that the average licensed item is priced 32.9% higher than a non-licensed equivalent, but people remain drawn to licensed products. Amanda Cioletti, vice president for content strategy at Licensing Group, the company that organizes the licensing expo, said that she thought people gravitated toward branded products because, quote, it's one less thing to worry about. It's an automatic response, like, okay, I am comfortable with this line of products. I am comfortable with this logo. Therefore, I am going to leverage that trust and grab the other range of things that are branded likewise. Licensed products are ubiquitous and create the texture of our consumerist lives. Walk through the aisle of your local supermarket, and you'll notice the products. Scooby-Doo fruit snacks, Marvel branded dull celery. Are you noticing the products? Pixar Ziploc bags. But much of licensing is inconspicuous, while Mr. Clean's flagship products like the Magic Eraser, Zales Jewelry, which is uh, you may be reminded of right now, uh, is, is, is he going to, um, are the subtitles playing in your head? Do you see the Zales ad happening now? Is he going to uh, ask her? Is she going to say yes? I prefer bracelets myself. Let's see. Kids are like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, no. Let me back up one more step. While Mr. Clean's flagship products like the Magic Eraser come straight from Procter & Gamble, a pair of Mr. Clean rubber gloves is licensed. The result of a deal between P&G and a rubber glove company. Kids are like, oh, yeah, I want that banana for breakfast because it has a sticker of Shrek on it, said Sue That's Oh, wait, um, no. So, okay. The Shrek sticker thing we'll come back to. I, I want to write this down. They covered this in an episode of UID. Um, kids will choose rocks with a Shrek sticker on it above food. And then that kind of says everything. Uh, we'll get back to that, though. Hold on. Let me just make a note for myself. Uh, Shrek sticker. See, it's helping you remember, too, because I'm going to talk about it several times here as I find where I was going to circle it. Uh, okay. Shrek sticker, shrek sticker, shrek sticker, shrek sticker. Okay, here we go. All right. Adults are the same. One. Uh, okay, also we're going to do the history of the uh, Jeffrey the Toys R Us giraffe. We're not even done with this article yet. Um, Branded merchandise isn't it fun when we make notes together it's great all right you go to walmart uh kids are like oh yeah i want that bandana for breakfast because it has a sticker of shrek on it said sue seltzer the president of the licensing group a talent agency for brands like checkers popsicle the american red cross nbc and miracle group adults are the same way okay yeah that was an entire study or they uh, did um, uh, banana banana A-B testing, stickers, etc cetera, rocks, um, rewards, branding. It says everything you think it does. It says everything that just said. You go to Walmart and you see the number one brand of French fry there is at Checkers. You go to Walmart and you see the number one brand of French fry there is Checkers, Mr. Seltzer said. It is made by a company called Lamb Weston. Nobody knows the brand Lamb Weston. Nobody lamb weston has to be one of the biggest potato companies in america the consumer sees checkers and the frozen french fries seem more trustworthy comfortably similar he added so the checkers fries of course are the checkers fries that company made the fries for checkers that company made the fries for juicy lucy's that company made the fries for a lot of different brands in fact i think that brands i mean they still made the fries for rallies as well if that still exists i believe those fries are also the fries. If you if you live locally, end up uh, similarly. I believe those fries end up at um, in the bag that ends up at several other fast food restaurants. But you know, behind the cloak. Anyway, I think they make uh, make a few other of your faves at the chains. But I, uh, I digress quite a bit. Let's get back into the zone here. T.J. Friday's was, quote, one of the pioneers in the space, according to Francis Alvarez, the vice president for brand management at Beanstalk, another licensing agency whose clients include P&G, the United States Army, and Cheez-It Crackers. It's the whole idea of taking the Friday's brand and putting it on a frozen potato skin and selling it in a grocery store, she said. Yes, that's right. The box of T.J. Friday's frozen mozzarella sticks you might buy is licensed and not made by the restaurant itself. Yeah, like, uh, well... Mm, i sense that that was okay well don't don't editorialize in your own article let me do that thank you when tgi fridays began to license its name to frozen food companies which i believe was sometime in the mid 90s um i remember getting uh tgi friday stuff for y2k party for sure um it's quote franchisees were saying wait a minute Nobody's going to go to a Friday's restaurant because now they can buy potato skins at the grocery store, Miss Alvarez said. Well, that theory has been totally debunked. It's a totally different experience when you go to a Friday's with your family and friends. The product doesn't aim to recreate the experience of going to a restaurant. Rather, it's about leveraging the idea of the restaurant experience at home, Ms. Alvarez said. Yeah, well, they're pretty much the same product. TJ Friday's frozen appetizers are made by Kraft Heinz and have been on the market for about 15 years. And those potato skins are made by a supplier when they're put at the restaurant, too. It's just a different supplier. I mean, honestly, the product... It... I digress again. Mr. Seltzer said, Heinz went from having very little market share to all of a sudden being a category leader. Deborah Ressler, Senior Vice President for Business Development and Marketing for Beanstalk, estimated the frozen appetizers grossed around $200 million in annual sales. These frozen food products use licensing in a way that is imperceptible to the average consumer, and that's part of why they are so successful. Putting the face of Emerald Legacy, the Food Network star, on a salad dressing at the supermarket, or the Chick-fil-A logo on a bottle in the condiment section makes consumers feel safe. Correct. And safety is what we all need when we're running down the aisles, uh, trying to get out of the store before we get uh, taken out by some maniac. Products with more obvious licensing, are also popular. Of course, they just possess a different sort of appeal. When you wear an Iron Man t-shirt or Miller Lite baseball cap, you're signaling to the world that this particular piece of IP is important to who you are. Pam Lifford, the president of Consumer Products at Warner Brothers, said she thought that branded products were so successful because of the emotional connection consumers felt to the stories they watched on television and at the movies. Quote, you sit down and watch something and there's an emotional tug there, a sense of belonging as the story is being told. Miss Lifford said, the content we watch, quote, helps us identify how we feel about ourselves, the kind of people we hang with. It's a way to bring people together and it's a way to express yourself. Yes, expressing your individuality and your uh, individual nature through the uh, content you curate for yourself definitely uh the subject and premise of the other podcast kind of as well as this one not now honestly um yeah let's let's just read that one more time you sit down and watch something and there's an emotional tug there a sense of belonging to a story is being told miss Lifford said the content we watch I'm going to editorialize ads included quote, helps us identify how we feel about ourselves and the reality television we digest definitely does, the ultimate mirror, the kind of people we hang out with, and it's a way to bring people together. It's a way to express yourself. Mike Becker, the founder of the toy company Funko, which licenses IP for its popular bobblehead-like products called Funko Pops, said the company's Success could be traced to the idea that everyone's a fan of something. Exactly. Everyone's a fan of something. Um, It makes me think of how much we enjoy and hold the safety of the past, perceived safety of the past, perceived security of the past in the commercials we were delivered and we are now nostalgic for. There's a lot of noise in our world now, Ms. Coletti observed. You used to be able to form an identity in a smaller echo chamber. Pam Kaufman, the president of Consumer Products and Experiences at Paramount, said that the licensing business only continues to grow, and that while Paw Patrol was the company's most popular piece of IP, branded products had, quote, multi-generational appeal. It makes you think of, uh, well, lots of things, but Star Wars, Marvel etc. I mean Marvel and DC were cracking away at that multi generational appeal. I mean, they've been pulling over at that one four or five generations over. It's just the most recent previously most recent generation figured out how to pop that into a, a movie screen. And I'll be goddamned if I'm not like eventually caught up on that shit. But uh they keep putting out more content and now I gotta watch the Netflix shows. But that's for the other show. Pam Kaufman, the president of Consumer Products, experiences a Paramount, multi-generational appeal. Nostalgia has been really interesting as a trend, Ms. Kaufman observed. Not to go too far back, but I would say that after 9-11, the world was really shaken. Everyone was scared, and they only started hunkering down. The same thing kind of happened during the pandemic. You start identifying with and feeling tremendous comfort from the things that bring you joy. A lot of that is characters or brands you identify with. And for those who live online, maybe the games you identify with, the things you're willing to spend money on you didn't use to spend money on, because the growing unconscious desire that uh, the things you spend money on make you feel good has gone from something you become aware of to something you embrace, which is a fun thought, a fun idea, uh, if you want to think it's fun or not. Um, I mean, we all, uh, a lot of us consume professional sports and we do that despite all the things that we know about professional sports. And, uh, you know, we've been doing that our whole lives. And uh, how is that any different than Marvel or any other pr- piece of entertainment, form of media? Right? Exactly. So uh, don't look at uh, someone else as the victim of some system necessarily. Just think of them as another person like you making their way through this world. Don't uh, don't pity. Understand. Take the time to understand. During a keynote event at the expo, the entrepreneur Gary Finerchuk told Ms. Kaufman that quote, "The delta between religion and the Marvel universe is smaller than people realize." Aha, yes. Not to say that Spider-Man has taken the place of God in our culture, but rather that it is possible, and not particularly strange, to feel a cosmic connection to your favorite content. Collecting Funko Pops or liking the same IP as someone else can make a person feel like they're part of something bigger and provide them with community, something many have found harder to come by in this era of social distancing and social media. Jason Taylor, a 37 year old inventory control specialist from Lapeer, Michigan, who recently started doing Marvel cosplay, his favorite character to dress up as is Thor, said that his newfound hobby made him feel less lonely. He was not at the licensing expo since it's only open to businesses, but is the sort of consumer whom the convention's attendees hope to reach. Quote, it's amazing to find a group of people who share the same creativity and passions, Mr. Taylor said. Quote, I grew up obsessed with Superman. I collected everything. A lot of people thought that was weird, and it got made fun of for it. To find so many people with the same obsessions, it feels like a sense of belonging," End quote. I think that says it all. Time, When we give it any thought, it tends to strike us as extrinsic, a feature of our landscape. We track our passage through it as if traversing an invisible geography, our progress charted by wristwatch, clock, calendar. Humans didn't invent time, of course, but you might reasonably argue that because we invented the units we used to keep track of it, hours, minutes, seconds, we have every right to tinker with them when we want to. This, at least, was the position the Senate took on March 15th, when in a surprise, and surprisingly uncontested, voted passed the Sunshine Protection Act. The new law would, if the House concurs and the President signs, make daylight savings time permanent beginning on November 5th, 2023. The change has long been a desire of the retail industry because it is convinced that shoppers spend more money when it stays light out later. But lawmakers also seem to have regarded the annual rolling back of the clock as a personal affront. The groggy mornings that result from turning 6am into 5am, the morale killer for Boston and Billings alike when darkness abruptly descends shortly after 4 in the afternoon. When the years prevailed, there was a bipartisan applause as if a particularly hostile foreign adversary had been defeated. What most of those lawmakers very likely didn't realize was that the enemy was not just outside us. A social agreement about how to label every moment of our existence relative to the sun, it was also inside us, where our internal organs are keeping time, too. In fact, most of our physiological functions are governed by an untold number of carefully synchronized biological clocks that each complete one cycle about every 24 hours. Those cycles are known as circadian rhythms, after the Latin for about and day, circa dies. Many of us are passingly familiar with circadian rhythms as a way to refer to our sleep cycle. In 1972, scientists discovered that the cycle is mediated by an area in the brain's hypothalamus called the suprachrismatic nucleus. This structure coordinates the release of hormones, among them dopamine, that lower body temperature and blood pressure, and make us feel sleepy. In the morning, cortisol and other hormones restore our alertness, make us warmer, and increase blood pressure. The AM surge in blood pressure is believed to be one reason that heart attacks occur more often in, uh, than in the PM. In the past two decades, however, researchers have discovered that the clock in the brain is by no means the only one in our body. It turns out that most of our cells contain a group of genes that might be thought of as gears in a mechanical watch, keeping time everywhere internally. These clock genes, uh, there are at least six uh, that are considered to be integral to the watch's operation, work together in the same way in each cell. And just as they cause the release of hormones in the brain, they dictate other processes in other parts of the body. In the early 2000s, advances in the ability to detect the activity of genes in various tissues revealed that the cell clocks are organized into separate organ-level clocks, representing every physiological system. There's a skin clock, and a liver clock, an immune system clock, there's a clock for the kidney, heart, lungs, muscles, and reproductive system, each of these clocks syncs itself to the central clock in the brain like an orchestra section following its conductor. But those sections also adjust how and when they perform based on guidance they receive both from the environment and from one another. And their timing can provide feedback to the central clock and cause it to adjust to the time it keeps too. The liver, for instance, determines when to rev up your metabolism based on how you eat and when you eat. And if you do that in the middle of the night, the liver will be receiving contradictory cues from the brain, which is telling it to rest. As a result, when the liver starts processing the midnight food, it will do so less less efficiently than it would have done after a daytime meal, thus sending conflicting signals back to the brain and other organ systems. Such internal misalignment or dysregulation can throw our physiology out of whack. Perhaps the most familiar way we experience this sort of internal chaos is when traveling across multiple time zones. As we eat, sleep, or engage in other activities based on the local time, our central and peripheral clocks reset themselves at different rates to match the new environment. The symptoms of jet lag, insomnia, exhaustion, and stomach problems, sluggishness, and distractedness are examples of the sort of overall malaise caused by circadian confusion. Staying up hours later on the weekend than you do on the week has the same effect. This has been dubbed social jet lag. Circadian rhythms, in other words, are relevant to more than sleep. But few realized how relevant until 2014, when a professor of pharmacology at the University of Pennsylvania named John Hoganesh. John Hoganesh published a paper with his colleagues showing that almost half of the genes in mice produce proteins on a 24-hour schedule. This means that as the clock genes cycle through their functions, their work is activating or deactivating thousands of other non-clock genes in constant daily patterns. The finding astonished circadian experts. After giving a talk about the paper at a conference, Hoganesh went to the bathroom and encountered at the urinal Horacio de la Iglesia, a prominent biologist at the University of Washington, with decades of uh, circadian research to his name. De La Iglesia was incredulous about what he had just heard at a urinal. Until then, it was thought that at most 30% of our genome was under circadian regulation. The mouse study implied that the number was far greater. This was a mind-blowing idea, De La Iglesia says. Hoganesh's an imposing figure, six foot one, with an indifference to fashion mores and a naturally dubious expression, felt awkward at a urinal, and a, but compelled to engage on the spot. He remembers explaining further that hundreds of the time-regulated genes he had identified in the mice were already being targeted in their human equivalents by existing drugs or were potential drug targets. The fact that the genes oscillated became active or inactive in a predictable pattern meant that those drugs might be very effective at certain times of the day and less so at others. And they might trigger side effects at certain times, but not others, depending on the phase of the clocks in other affected tissues. Hoganesh has since found that 50% of our genes are controlled by the clock. That amounts to about 10,000 of the roughly 20,000 genes we have. It was very hard to accept, De La Iglesia, who is also the president of the Society for Research on Biological Rhythms, told me recently, recalling their conversation. I love the idea because I'm a circadian biologist, but it's also hard to believe. Hoganesh has been explaining himself and the relevance of clock genes to medicine ever since. In 2018, he moved to Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Research Center, where he was given a lab in the Human Genetics Division. Before his appointment at Penn, he had a leadership role in the genomics institute at the pharmacological institute or company Novartis, which jump-started the careers of numerous leaders in molecular biology. Hoganesh hoped that being in a daily proximity to patients and doctors would give him a chance to use circadian research to help people direct end of a gigantic parenthetical. Western medicine has long been skeptical of studies that tout the health benefits of synchronizing treatments with biological cycles, as traditional Chinese medicine does, in large part because there was no scientific explanation for the results, or in other words, research had just hadn't been done. The relatively recent revelation of the genetic underpinnings of circadian rhythms had sparked a reevaluation of many decades-old ideas. Previously. Those ideas were tested by seeing whether people who received particular health intervention had different outcomes depending on when they received it, or by observing associations between the timing of certain behaviors, like sleep and one's risk of disease. Now scientists possess the technology to see how circadian rhythms oscillate at a molecular level based on behavior and time of day in both mice and people. Hoganesh is one of those scientists, and his effort to bridge the divide between the lab and the clinic has been its own kind of experiment in moving circadian biology from the fringes to the center of mainstream medical treatment. Ultimately, he and others hope figuring out how the clocks in us will enable us to control them in ways that improve our health, keeping us vigorous longer. At the moment, they tick relentlessly toward one end. Conceptually speaking, at least... If you could slow them down or pause them at will, you would be altering humanity's relationship with time itself. All creatures, humans included, tend to behave differently during the day than they do at night. The two periods reward opposing sensory strengths when it comes to hunting and hiding. For most of modern history, before we understood that the (laughs) super-archae-archae- Uh, mm Super? Supra? Suprachiasmatic nucleus. That's what it is. Suprachiasmatic nucleus. Drives the sleep-wake cycle. It was assumed that we and other creatures simply took our cues from our surroundings. Is it light out? Dark? But when it comes to being active or resting... Oh. When it comes to being active arresting. But by 1971, Ronald Kanopika, a graduate student at the California Institute of Technology, had begun testing a theory uh, how certain that behavior was, in fact, innate, driven by genes rather than external signals. To many, the notion sounded crazy. Behavior was far too complex to be hereditary. Kanopka, however, uh, had observed that fruit fly pupae usually emerged from the chrysalis-like shell at dawn, when the humidity enabled them to unfold their wings. How could pupae, lacking a timer as they metamorphosized inside their cocoons, know when it was morning? Canopica and his professor Seymour Benzer, a molecular biologist at the forefront of the field that became known as behavioral genetics, began inducing random DNA mutations in fruit flies and watched for pupae that emerged at the wrong time of day. They produced three lineages that did. One emerged seemingly at random, one emerged too early, and one emerged too late. Remarkably, all three had mutations in the same gene. In Ordinary Flies, it seemed that Gene ran a 24-hour clock that was reset each day. The period of the clock in the mutants was too short, too long, or non-existent. Gradually, it became clear that humans and other mammals had evolved similar clock genes that allowed them to anticipate rather than simply react to day and night. Scientists are now confident that they know basically how they work. Quote, It's a little bit like looking at something mechanical, an engine in a car. There's pistons and a crankshaft says Michael Young, professor of genetics at Rockefeller University, who shared the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his work on clock mechanisms. Sounds dangerously like ecology turning the human body into a machine system, but I will continue. Two genes, one of which Hoganesh identified earlier in his career, produce proteins that activate another pair of genes, causing them to start making proteins of their own. When these reach a certain level in a cell, they interfere with the gearworks, so to speak, keeping them from turning. Eventually, the proteins degrade, and the process, uh, which several other genes also participate in, begins anew. Each on-off cycle takes about 24 hours. Our cellular clocks are running essentially the same way in a liver cell as they are in a neuron, but what those cells accomplish as a result is quite different. As Joseph S. Takahashi, the chair of the neuroscience department at the O'Donnell Brain Institute in the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, who identified the first clock gene in mammals, put it to me, quote, Once you find that every cell in your body has a clock, then you want to know, well, what is it doing? In a way, we're still at that phase. The suprachiasmatic nucleus is wired directly to the retina, And in the 1980s, it was confirmed that the brain clock can be calibrated by sunlight or artificial light, which signals when it's daytime. Getting light consistently when you first wake up and keeping uh, that wake-up time the same each day can help the clock on track in turn so that you fall asleep at the optimal hour. It can also prevent a weakening of your circadian rhythms or a decrease in their amplitude. This results in less contrast between your active phase and your rest phase, which in the case of sleep can potentially translate into feeling more tired during the day and waking more often at night. Robust robust rhythms, however, require that the brain does not receive light signals at night. Some studies show that even while you're sleeping, dim light can penetrate your closed eyelids and confuse the clock. Maintaining healthy circadian rhythms in the brain can improve the duration and quality of sleep, and better sleep correlates with better neural function and reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease, which has been associated with fragmented sleep. Adjusting the central clock, though, can also shift the sleep cycle to coincide with the optimal time for your neurological repair during the brain's 24-hour cycle. Scott Kilgore, a professor at the University of Arizona, has explored light as a treatment for military veterans who have suffered post-traumatic brain injuries or have post-traumatic stress disorder. His findings suggest that exposure to blue light, a proximity for sunlight, in the morning could make therapy for PTSD more effective by improving his subject's sleep. But when veterans go to sleep, not just quantity and quality uh, also seems to be important. When? When? Morning blue light, as opposed to a placebo of amber light, helped people recover from brain injuries and concussions, largely by prompting them to fall asleep an hour earlier and awaken an hour earlier, which, Kilgore says, had appeared to equate to, quote, better time of night for brain repair. After six weeks, subjects with traumatic brain injuries felt less sleepy, had more balance, and did better on planning and sequencing tests. Functional MRIs showed that a brain region associated with visual attention had grown larger and had faster communication between neurons. Being exposed to light when your body ought to be resting, on the other hand, can have a significant impact. In March, Phyllis Zee, a neurologist at Northwestern University, and her colleagues reported in PNAS that just one night of moderate light exposure during sleep Roughly what you would get by leaving the bedroom shades open to the streetlights, impaired glucose and cardiovascular regulation in otherwise healthy, in otherwise healthy young participants. Over time, these changes could increase the risk of heart disease and diabetes. Last month, a publication in Sleep co-authored by Z linked any nighttime light exposure during sleep to a substantial increased risk of obesity, diabetes, and hypertension in older adults. The findings lend support to large epidemiological studies that have been shown that light during sleep, particularly from a TV left on in the bedroom, is a risk factor for obesity. Some 40% of Americans report leaving a TV or bedside lamp on at night. A 2019 study in the Journal of Health Economics looked at people living in adjacent countries on either side of a time zone border, counties, rather, a circumstance akin to comparing the impacts of a daylight time versus standard. Those on the western side, for whom it was dark in the morning and light at night, for an extra hour, slept less, were, uh, were more likely to be overweight and obese, and had higher risks of diabetes, heart attacks, and cancer. Widespread exposure to bright light at night has only been possible within the past 100 years. Until the invention of electricity and air travel, it would have been relatively tough to throw your brain clock out of alignment with the sun. Now, however, at least 20% of Americans work a shift that requires them to sleep during the day and be active at night for part of the week. This means they are less likely to be exposed to daylight when they should be resting and often getting no comparable light when they're up and about. Such shift work, required of hospital and factory workers, restaurant staff, transportation providers, the military, first responders, and new parents, has been associated with a wide range of health disorders. To figure out why, Kenneth Wright, who directs the Sleep and Chronobio- <laughs> Chronobiology Laboratory, Chronobiology is a brand new, awesome word for me, at the University of Colorado, has had healthy volunteers sleep during the day and stay awake all night. It doesn't take long for that schedule to significantly alter the ways proteins their bodies create in ways that are known to increase the risk of chronic disease. Quote, shift work goes against our fundamental biology, Wright says. Quote, it's not going to go away, so what can we do? We have to come up with effective strategies to help them. That, he and others believe, will most likely include advising them to eat, exercise, and get the right amount of light at times that offset some of the health risks they face. For example, consider the timing of meals. Eating at night increases the risk of glucose intolerance, which causes diabetes, because the kidney, pancreas, and liver are primed to be resting then. But a 2021 study in science advances demonstrated that when uh, the journal Science Advances demonstrated that when subjects were kept up at night, as shift workers are, uh, but were awakened during the day to eat, they did not experience glucose intolerance. It is possible for you to effectively become nocturnal by manipulating the time you get light, melatonin, and other circadian clues, so that the active phase for your liver, brain, and other organs occurs at night. But this is often impractical for shift workers who want or need to spend part of the week awake during the day, of course. Charles Selzier, one of the study's authors and chief— uh, This is also basically a study that says that we can have humans live in a cave, which is— fucked up. Charles Selzier, one of that's definitely what the study was about, too. Charles Selzier, one of the study's authors and chief of the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, directs, uh, also directs the Sleep Division of Sleep Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He began his career as a sleep researcher in the early 1970s, before the importance of sleep to overall health was widely appreciated as it is right now. Currently, The application of circadian rhythms to healthcare, some speak of it as medicine, is often considered just a facet of sleep medicine, and it lacks the cohesion and influence that discipline has achieved. Circadian uh, medicine often extends so far from sleep medicine, Selzer told me. We need to develop a new clinical specialty, in the same way that sleep medicine was developed half a century ago. Okay, so basically they want to split uh, sleep medicine in circadian medicine into two separate sects of research. Hospitals are, perhaps paradoxically, one of the worst environments imaginable for maintaining optimal circadian health. This goes for both staff and patients. Typically, there is little natural light, and what there is is far dimmer indoors than out. Patient sleep is constantly interrupted by noises and procedures, many of which take place overnight and are thus performed by shift workers. When Hoganesh arrived at his Cincinnati hospital four years ago, he saw opportunities for improvement everywhere, starting with the lights. Cincinnati happened to be designing a new building, and he got involved in planning a lighting system for its neonatal intensive care unit that would mimic the full spectrum of daylight outside at any given hour. Right now, lights aren't considered medical devices, meaning they are not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration in any way, uh, the same way that pacemakers Or are largely based um, say pacemakers or bandages are. Instead, lighting schemes are largely based on habit, an assumption rather than evidence of their effects on patient health. Quote, the culture of neonatal intensive care is that the darker the better, Jim Greenberg co-director of the hospital's uh, perinatal unit told me. There is a misconception that the womb is a dark quiet place. Part of standard practice is putting shrouds over isolates to keep them in the dark research has repeatedly shown however that the premature infants who receive 12 hours of light followed by 12 hours of darkness are discharged an average of two weeks earlier than those who are exposed to near constant darkness or near constant light the new system will allow the hospital so basically uh plants humans alike uh operate well in an artificial light system if they can't get uh outside all day The new system will allow the hospital to go a step further and investigate for the first time the optimal lighting conditions for the premature infants. This fall, doctors plan to test the effect of both various spectra uh, and light-dark cycles on the metabolism and growth of newborns with gastrointestinal disorders. It's easy to imagine similar experiments revolutionizing the best practices for illuminating nursing homes, schools, and office buildings. And, uh, homes, obviously. Oftentimes, as is true, in the NICU there is a presumption that drawn curtains and darkness bring tranquility to the elderly and those suffering from pain or illness, when in fact the absence of light most likely results in worse moods, sleep, and health. After his encounter with De La Iglesia, Hoganesh decided to go on a public relations offensive. If circadian scientists were startled by one another's work, it was no wonder that clinicians in other disciplines weren't aware of their research and thus weren't using it to help patients. I heard him exhort a handful of circadian researchers at a lunch in early 2020, quote, it's time for us to get out of our labs, he told them, and into our colleagues' offices. He meant this literally. David Smith, a pediatric ear, nose and throat doctor at psych... That's a weird way to write a sentence. At Cincinnati says, it's like a political candidate doing a house-to-house. John has given I don't know how many talks. This has required a certain willingness to set aside his own ego. Hoganesh is, <laughs> yeah. uh, hey guys, nobody knows what I'm here for, but I'm going to tell you. Hoganesh is internationally known to his field, but he says the reaction of specialists at the hospital when he barged into their units wielding PowerPoint slides and an encyclopedic knowledge of circadian research relevant to their disciplines tended to be, who's this haagen guy, he says. It was one such talk that Hoganesh discovered a probable circadian rhythm malfunction that wasn't caused by poor light or fragmented sleep. Several doctors from Cincinnati's bone marrow transplantation and immune deficiency division happen to be in attendance. In their unit, children with leukemia are given chemotherapy to kill abnormal cells and suppress the immune system before a transplant so they don't need to, re- to reject uh, so they don't reject a donor's marrow. The process often results in life-threatening complications. Afterward, patients typically spend 3 to 8 weeks recovering in the hospital. During that time, the doctors told Hoganesh The children often developed hypertension that was difficult to medicate. They also prescribed uh, an effort that they had been making to improve sleep in the unit by limiting disruptive noise at night, unnecessary monitor alarms, janitorial services, the clank of doors against metal doorstops. Curious, Hoganesh followed them up to their floor, hoping he might be able to suggest some useful additional tweaks. I visited a hospital in 2020, and while I was there, he and one of the transplant researchers, Christopher Dandoy, reenacted this episode for me. Inside an empty room, Dandoy flicked a switch by the door. I was pretty sure the lighting would be crappy. Uh, let me turn the page for And And uh, you guys did not disappoint, Hoganess said cheerfully. For confirmation, he opened up a light meter app on his phone and waved it at the anemic overhead lights and a window the size of a pizza box. He pointed at all the blue lights glowing on various medical devices. Clock resetters, he announced. He duct tapes over the unblinking blue light of electronics in his own home and travels with a roll of tape for hotel room makeovers. A television was mounted above the bed, too, one that the patients were free to leave on all night. The room's poor lighting and lack of total darkness didn't surprise Hoganesh, but he started to learn that the patients were fed intravenously 24 hours per day, a protocol based partly on the delivery and expiration times of the nutritional formula. Hoganesh explained to his colleagues that people often develop hypertension and other problems if they eat during their circadian rest phase, which is usually at night. Quote, we had never thought about that in a clinical sense, Dandoy told me. It took a year for Hoganesh, Dandoy, and others to get the transplant division to agree to run a trial in which some patients would be fed for only 12 hours during the day instead of constantly. The hypothesis was that these children would experience better metabolic and immune system regulation than those who received the current standard of care. Quote, it could be a huge game changer, Dandoy told me. By the end of last year, a dozen patients had tried the 12-hour regimen with no ill effects, and though it is too early to say how much patients may benefit from a rel- uh, relative pay- benefit from it relative to their peers in a control group. Right. The unit's dietitian, Cindy Taggart, was initially skeptical that lo- the logistics would work. Sometimes 14 hours for feeding is the best you can do. Anecdotally, she thinks that it is helping. I do feel like my patients. Return to eating faster, she says. Metabolism isn't just about the digestion of food, it's also about how all our cells use energy to perform the tasks required to keep us alive and functioning. The more efficiently they can do that while simultaneously replicating and repairing themselves, the better off we tend to be. Phyllis Z, the neurologist who in 2024 founded the Center for Circadian and Sleep Medicine at the Feinberg School of Medicine, the first place in the united states to consider circadian medicine as a separate specialty thinks patients with lots of common chronic diseases from diabetes to heart disease to cognitive decline might see improvement by changing their behaviors to improve the synchronization of their internal clocks quote you don't need to do the fancy stuff she says keeping a log of when you sleep and wake eat and take medications as well as how the night goes and how you feel You don't need to do any of the fancy stuff. She says keeping a log of all those things could give you and your primary care doctor plenty of information to act on. Yeah, well, that's the first thing they tell you to do. So, indeed, one of the great promises of circadian medicine is its DIY appeal. If we could figure out one uh, optimal time to eat or exercise, for example, we could change our behavior immediately, free of charge, not only to minimize harm, but also to maximize the health benefits of given activities. Professional athletes and their trainers, for example, for instance, know that physical performance peaks in the late afternoon or early evening. Most world records are broken in the evening. In February, Cell Metabolism published an atlas of exercise metabolism that showed how, from mice, the metabolic effects of running on mini-treadmills changed over 24 hours. It may be, says julien Zariath, a physiologist's at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, and one of the study authors, that certain types of activity, like low intensity exercise versus high intensity, are ideally undertaken at certain times, depending on the outcome you prioritize. Weight loss, blood sugar control, strength. These are small changes for small improvements, she says. I would call it fine tuning. For elite athletes though, the slightest advantage can make the difference between a loss and a victory. Charles Zeisler has served as a sleep consultant for professional sports teams, including the Boston Celtics and the Red Sox since 2009. The Celtics schedule, he says by way of example, was inadvertently introducing, uh, inducing tremendous circadian disruption. Their games often ended at 11 p.m. They finished up the arena, dinner, and arrived home as late as 4 a.m. Then many had to get treatment for injuries at 7 a.m. before practice at 9 a.m. Fixing the problem didn't require any special therapy or high-tech equipment. Zeisler just persuaded them to maintain consistent sleep-wake times throughout their week and weekend. Practicing in the afternoon and going to bed at 3 a.m., sleeping until 11 a.m., he insisted that they not schedule early morning flights. When they traveled to the West Coast, he advised them to shift their schedule by three hours to keep their bodies on East Coast time. It's impossible to quantify the exact impact Seisler's adjustments have had on performance, but a 2017 study in the journal PNAS analyzed 20 years of Major League Baseball statistics and was able to ascribe a dip in teams winning percentage to the circadian disruptions that cause jet lag. Non-athletes and circadian researchers have focused more interest on the question of when to eat or fast, whether to skip breakfast or dinner, for example some of the most convincing answers have come from randomized control trials by researchers at Tel Aviv University and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Separate trials with participants who were overweight and who had diabetes show that consuming most of your calories early, having a large breakfast, a medium lunch, and a small dinner leads to lower blood sugar levels and greater weight loss compared to with sizing the meals in reverse order. On average, Americans eat within a 12-hour window, but Courtney Peterson, an associate professor of nutrition sciences at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, has found that shrinking that to a 6-8 to hour window in eating more of the day's calories earlier can help lower blood pressure and blood sugar, which may help people with diabetes and high blood pressure. Depriving cells of nutrients can initiate different metabolic processes. Studies involving mice have found that when animals' caloric input is restricted to 30% below they typically consume, they live 30% longer than usual. Looking at those experiments, Joseph Takahashi, the Texas Southwestern neuroscientist, who is also an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, who we mentioned at the beginning of the article, wondered how much influence circadian rhythms, as opposed to caloric restriction and the fasting period, had on the mice's longevity. In a study published in Science last month, he and his colleagues managed to tease apart this correlation. When the restricted diet was meted out to mice around the clock, their lifespans were only 10% longer than those mice in the control group that ate as much as they wanted whenever they wanted. Mice on the restricted diet that got their food all at once ate all their calories within a two-hour window and lived an additional 10% longer. Finally, when the mice ate during their active phase, rather than their rest phase, they lived another 15% longer. Yeah, that's 25% longer for the people within the restrictive eating window. This suggests that the time of day when the mice ate was just as important to the low longevity as any other factor. Think about that and apply that to humans and eating patterns. Try to figure out why Takahashi and his team examined the liver tissue after the mice died. They discovered that the longer the mice lived, the more active were the genes regulating immune function and inflammation. The genes associated with metabolism were less active. Quote, aging you can think of as really a disease of inflammation, Takahashi told me. The implication is that by figuring out the relationship between our clock genes and the genes governing metabolism and inflammation and modifying the workings of the clock genes to speed up or slow down those processes throughout the body, we may be able to prevent disease and thereby remain healthy into old age. Researchers have long known that the immune system which generates inflammation in response to harmful stimuli like injury, toxins, and germs oscillates in a 24-hour rhythm. Since 1960, studies of mice have repeatedly demonstrated that the time of day they were injected with the bacterial toxin that prompts an immune reaction significantly affects their mortality. The infection kills about 80% of the mice that are exposed to the pathogen during the rest of the phase. It only kills 30% of the mice exposed in the middle of their active period. Rest in peace to those mice. When we are awake, immune cells are poised to respond to damage in our tissues. At night, they circulate in the bloodstream and collect information about any threats encountered that day. Let me repeat that. When we are awake, immune cells are poised to respond to damage in our tissues. At night, they circulate in the bloodstream and collect information about any threats encountered that day. Wounds heal faster during the day. Flu vaccines are more effective if given in the morning. In 2015, Aziz Sankar, a professor at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, won the Nobel Prize for his discovery that a skin protein that repairs damage from ultraviolet exposure is controlled by a clock gene and thus operates with a circadian rhythmicity. Rodents exposed to UV radiation at 4 a.m., for example, are five times more likely to develop invasive skin cancer than those exposed at 4 p.m. There is a growing interest in exploiting circadian rhythms by aligning our behavior with our clocks or our clocks with our behavior to improve the efficacy and reduce the side effects of treatments for diseases, especially cancer. Changing our behavior, of course, is much easier. Decades ago, studies led by Francis Levi, a medical oncology uh, specialist at Paris-Saclay University, conducted before the cellular clock mechanisms were well understood, found that the toxicity of cancer drugs responsible for the harmful side effects that accompany chemotherapy could be reduced and the drug's effectiveness against cancer cells boosted if the drugs were infused at certain times of day. But follow-up studies showed that a particular infusion schedule improved the length of survival for men with colorectal cancer by nearly 40%, whereas the same schedule reduced survival for women by 25%. Levi has since found that another colorectal drug was least toxic for men at 9 a.m., while it was most toxic for women, their least toxic window, was 3 to 4 p.m. Levi is now conducting trials in France to figure out more precisely how sex and other factors influence patients' response and tolerance for chemotherapy. He is also studying how the circadian timing of tumors may differ from those of their hosts, which could reveal why they are most vulnerable to destruction. Levi believes that this work could help patients soon. Sankar, who is also doing research on tumors, is more cautious. Quote, There's been a great deal of wishful thinking, unfortunately, in our field, he says. Quote, You have to be realistic with what you have. You cannot be optimistic. As you get older, you're more vulnerable to cancer, as well as Alzheimer's, diabetes, and hypertension. And it's clear that the strength of our circadian rhythms, how distinct our active and rest phases are, weakens with age. Quote, if you look at little kids, they run around all day and they sleep like a log at night, said Eric Music. A neurologist and doctor at the Center on Biological Rhythms and Sleep at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. An 80-year-old, by contrast, may wake 15 times a night and nap frequently during the day. We don't know how to improve that, music says, except by advising older patients to get sunlight and keep moving during the day and avoid light at night. If the relationship between clock genes and the diseases of aging could be understood, the thinking goes, we could change the way that those genes work by targeting them more precisely and effectively with drugs, Music says. We don't know how to do that now without completely messing up someone's circadian rhythms, end quote. A new drug usually takes at least a decade to develop, and Hoganesh thinks that we could take advantage of <laughs> Hoganesh believes that we could take advantage of our biological clocks to improve the efficacy and reduce the side effects of the drugs we already have. In August 2019, he and his colleagues published a paper in Science noting that the circadian half of our genome includes many targets of the roughly 2,000 prescription drugs available in the United States. Very few of those medicines have been tested clinically at multiple times of day. Only four of the 50 top most prescribed drugs come with FDA-approved recommendations for when they should be taken. Hoganesh had hoped that the pharmaceutical company executives would read the science paper and be inspired to retest their existing drugs with timing as a variable. Besides improving those on the market, the companies might also find that experimental drugs that did not work well enough to obtain federal approval previously would do so if given at a different hour, thereby providing, or editorializing, your profit driving uh, for that research to be completed, which would be the only way that that research would be completed. It's a good idea to put that out there. Hoganesh says he has personally raised the paper's conclusions with the executives from at least two major drug companies. Their response, quote, that's really interesting, great paper, Hoganesh says, and then they change nothing. <laughs> That may be because it's easier to make drugs that remain active all day, or at least that you claim that are active all day, in the body than it is to get people to take a pill or multiple pills at specified times. This is perhaps the single biggest obstacle in transitioning into practice, the circadian research that could help us now. If we knew the optimal time to take medicine or to get treatment, would we, could we, hit that window? It's a big question, says Zachary Buchwald, a radiation oncologist at the uh, Windship Cancer Institute at Emory Universal, University Medical Center. Already, according to one 2010 study, half of all prescription drugs are taken incorrectly. Last year, Buchwald and his colleagues published a paper in Lancet Oncology showing that patients with metastatic melanoma who received at least 20% of their immunotherapy drug infusions after 4.30 p.m. did not live as long, on average, as those who received them earlier but that the study was purely observational, to be sure that it was the timing of the drug that affected survival, and not, for instance, because patients with other health disadvantages, had other health disadvantages, like fewer financial resources, tend to schedule later appointments. Buchwald tends, uh, needs (laughs) to be able to assign patients to random time slots, and he's not sure if any of them will be willing to accept that, exactly. It's hard to get them to come in, in an hour that is not of their choosing. And if timing does affect survival, what he dreams of is a drug that he can administer shortly before an infusion that shifts the clock in the immune system and the affected tissues to the ideal time. Without that, the effective tissues to the uh, uh, determining the patient's clock phases and identifying the best time for an infusion and getting uh, the patient best uh, the best time to get the patient in the clinic is out of reach. He says. An hour here or there, that's what matters, then we're kind of doomed to failure. The conundrum Buckwald, Hoganesh, and others face is that to determine how critical the timing of drug taking is, you need a large data set with hundreds, preferably thousands of diverse patients taking a drug across 24 hours. Otherwise, you risk not seeing small effects or believing that anomalous large effects are representative. but, Before institutions with the resources to run those studies will undertake them, they want proof of doing so will be worth it. Ironically, Takahashi points out that cancer research is the largest biomedical field in the United States, yet relatively few people are working on circadian rhythms and cancer. For them to have any impact on the field of cancer in the U.S., which has to be more than 5,000 labs, it's like a drop in the bucket. Unable to persuade pharmaceutical companies that Retesting drugs in their financial, is in their financial interest, Hoganesh has pressed his case at the hospital and others. Initial drug doses given in hospitals, his team has learned, are most likely to be happening at specific times of day, usually corresponding to shift changes and when medical teams make their rounds. Quote, Clinical decisions should be made around the clock, he and his co-authors wrote in a 2019 a PNAS publication. Pain, infection, hypertensive crisis, and other conditions do not occur selectively in the morning. In person, he is blunter. No matter how dumb it is, he says, referring to conventional hospital practices involving lighting, for example, or drug delivery, they don't want to change it. His observations have resonated with circadian scientists struggling to make headway at their own institutions. John has managed to elevate the discussion of the awareness of the discussion that needed to happen says Elizabeth Kerman, a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, who works in the sleep division of Massachusetts General Hospital, who also loves to have a very meta discussion talking about the uh, uh, observable nature of the observable nature of the observation. (laughs) We're trying to improve the health of most vulnerable. We have a responsibility to take care of them. And despite that, they're in the environment not conducive to sleep, he says, of hospital patients. I think his work is beautiful. He's making great headway in the area. Though the PNAS data revealed that when hospitals deliver drugs, very likely makes Uh, more operational sense than medical sense, it wasn't able to show whether that timing harms patients. If it doesn't, why change it? Hoganesh's team and collaborators at other hospitals are now analyzing electronic medical records to see if they can show that the times that certain common drugs are given affect how well they work. This is harder than it sounds because the data hospitals collect primarily is for billing, not research. And when patients receive services and medications isn't always specifically noted. If logging the times of procedures of blood draws, vaccines, urine, and other samples in patients' electronic and medical records were practiced, it could vastly improve our timing, our understanding of timing. Uh, Nowhere in your vaccination records does it say when you got it. But doing that ought to be so easy, she adds. This is all electronic. Any data gleaned from medical records will still be observational. But so much more data you have from a variety of sources, the more yeah, okay. so they're looking at indirect data sources to see if they can make the inferences that they will need to conduct researches. Um, personalized circadian medicine may be the future. That's the only way that I can really see it uh, advancing, as if it's only available for certain people for a long period of time, because I don't, otherwise I don't know how you could collect the data useful to a specific person, also uh, broadly at large. The timing of our clocks varies by individuals, set by the sun, individual lighting, genetic predisposition, our behavior, our age, and one another. Scientists are still scrambling to develop a quick and easy method for telling what phase or phases your organs are in. But for now, absolute precision isn't required to improve the coordination and strength of your biological rhythms. Circadian researchers generally suggest getting as much sunlight as you can during your day, especially upon waking, dimming the lights before sleep, and making your bedroom dark. Parking America on standard time, not daylight, would help accomplish that. Front load your calories earlier in the day. Most of all, try to keep your schedule comparable across the week, including weekends. There's room here to think about overall health optimization, improving mood, overall health. Helen Burgess, a professor of psychiatry and co-director of the Sleep and Circadian Research Laboratory at the University of Michigan, told me, We're all getting older. Many of us feel like we're languishing. She added... What what of the tiny things I can do to make myself feel better? Circadian medicine may enhance our well-being, in other words, but most of us should not expect to transform our lives anytime soon. There are, though, uh, exceptions to the rule that unusual circumstances may point toward broader applications later. As Hoganesh put it to me, you learn from the edge cases. Soon after he arrived in Cincinnati, a colleague in Boston forwarded him an email from the parents of Jack Grohlkos, a teenager with Smith-Kingsmore syndrome, an exceedingly rare condition, caused by a mutation in a single gene that brings about pain and seizures, developmental mental delays, autism, and a disposition to self-harm. In their letter, Mike and Kristen Grohlkos explained that Jack was taking a drug to turn off the gene. It had improved many of his symptoms, but his sleep had taken on a bizarre pattern. For more than a week, he couldn't sleep longer than an hour or two and instead paced constantly. A Fitbit his parents purchased to track his activity showered them uh, with congratulations. Then for seven to ten days, he would sleep for 14 hours. After ten days of little to no sleep, his body starts to break down, they wrote. He becomes shaky and unsteady, breaks out with eczema. Jack's doctors were baffled, hoping to generate an explanation. The gross had included in their email a bar graph of Jack's sleep cycle and a photo of him. He was looking poorly, Mike told me. Kristen added, "We thought a visual aid might help. Hoganesh saw the name of Jack's specialist, stood up, walked down the hall, and knocked on the specialist's door. Carlos Prada was an expert in rare genetic diseases in Hoganesh's own division in Cincinnati. Quote, he was 60 meters from where I was, Hoganesh says, and we had never talked about it. By happenstance, Hoganesh had recently discovered that turning off the same gene in mice increased the period of their circadian rhythm, making a cycle more than 24 hours long, and dampened its amplitude, blurring the boundaries between the phases of activity and rest. He explained to Prada that the drug Jack was taking might be having a similar effect on him. Prada, who has since moved to Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago and his colleagues, began incrementally changing Jack's dose until they found one that maintained the drug's effect without dysregulating sleep. When I talked to the gross closes, Jack had slept through the night for 30 days in a row. He was 17, and it was the most sleep the three of them had ever gotten as a family. That, Hoganish says, is the kind of meaningful real-world change that, has been pushing, uh, that he has been pushing for. Inspired, he founded and began directing a sleep and circadian medicine center at the hospital to treat complex cases, which include assessing patients' genetic profiles. The center opened in 2020 and has been book solid ever since. In May, Hoganesh was elected president of the Society for Research on Biological Rhythms. He will take the helm in 2024. A lot of new researchers are joining the field, he told me, and he hopes to use his role to promote their work, to make it relevant. Not just the doctors and the patients, but to everyone. To you. I think, he says, this is our time. And that's it. That's the longest thing I've ever written in the show, but I thought it was completely fascinating. It's the cover story of the New York Times Magazine, July 10th issue. Um, fascinating. Fascinating stuff. New branch of uh, medicine and science awaits us to be confused and amazed by And that's all I have to uh, say for you this week. I have 4,000 articles for you next week. And who knows, maybe I'll record another episode tomorrow. Thank you for listening. And uh, I'll see you in season two, episode three.